So when I was young, uh, my dad had a tape lying around that I would listen to all the time, and it was a comedy group from Britain, Great Britain, that uh, had all kinds of different sketches that they would do. And this one particular sketch was about a man going into a clinic that taught things you would never want to learn. So he goes into this clinic, and for example, uh, the first room that he goes in, they're teaching people how to argue. And so uh, he walks in, and the man immediately starts arguing with him, and he's supposed to argue back. Uh, and he thinks he's in the wrong room, so he goes out, and he goes into the next room, and, and the person imme immediately starts verbally abusing him. And, and this is a class on how to conduct verbal abuse. Uh, and then he goes out of that room, and he goes to the next one, and, and, and it's, it's teaching how to complain. How could you complain better? And then this is my favorite one. He goes into the last room, and he walks in, and immediately uh, the person in the room hits him on the head with a hammer, and, uh, and he says, ouch, and the person says, no, it's, it's wah, not ouch. So apparently this is learning, getting hit on the head lessons. And, uh, and apparently, this is for you to know uh, this, is that if you get hit on the head, you're not supposed to say ouch, you're supposed to say wah, that's what you do when you get hit on the head. Anyway, it's a clinic for things that you would never want to learn. Um, when I was looking through uh, the blogosphere this last week, that's where I guess all the blogs are kept in the world, somewhere out there in the sphere of blogging. Uh, and I was, I was just sort of curious, I do this every now and then, okay, type in Christianity, and, and I found a, a number of different articles that seem to communicate um, a similar thing as that sketch, that skit that I told you about. It's, it's as if Christianity sometimes appears to be teaching something that nobody would want in the first place. So some of the things that it seems that, that people glean from their Christian faith. How to become more judgmental, right? We've seen that. Uh, how to become hypocritical, right? We know uh, that seems to be something that, that Christianity teaches. How to become politically charged, right? Things that you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily want to learn. How to become insensitive to other cultures, right? Uh, how, how to spoil the environment. Does Christianity teach that? How to, this is maybe the worst one, how to become a boring person, right? Which we probably shouldn't, we should probably resist the temptation uh, to let bloggers define, you know, religion for us, Christianity for us. But it does raise the question, and that is, what is Christianity really about anyway? What is it really about? And that's what I want to grapple with this morning uh, together. Um, now, if it were all, about all the things that those bloggers describe about becoming more judgmental, becoming hypocritical, I just, I just really think that it can't be that because it wouldn't exist still, right? It would be gone. Uh, nobody would be, would be interested in that. So there's got to be something at the core of the Christian faith that is more compelling than that. Something that continues to draw people. In fact, we see Christianity growing, not in the West, but all throughout the world, we see people being drawn to the person of Jesus Christ, to have relationship with Him, to, to allow their lives to be shaped by what He taught. And so what is it at the center of all that that is such a powerful draw? What is it that draws people to the Christian faith? And that's what I want to think about um, a little bit together. Now, uh, I don't think we can ever fully explain what it is. Uh, I'm certainly not capable of communicating such lofty ideas in a way that even begins to approach the greatness of what's taught by Jesus. 
Um, but we have to try. I mean, if this is something that, that we value and is important to us, we have to try to explain what is it, what is the essence, what is the core of it. And that's what I want to do right now. I want to try to explain to you briefly what the Christian faith is about. And I'm going to use, um, draw on my uh, incredible artistic ability to help me with this, this process. And that's, that's sarcasm because I am not actually a great artist, but I feel that if I can share this in this way with my poor uh, artistry, then perhaps you could too. Now this explanation of Christianity is really based on that word gospel, which means simply good news. The gospel simply means good news. So, so don't worry about what that means. It's not some esoteric thing. It just means that somebody comes proclaiming good news. Now, the word gospel is used in the scripture in three different ways. It talks about the gospel of the kingdom, and then it talks about the gospel of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to use the word king because Jesus is a king, and it's easier to remember kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the king. And then there's one other primary way in which the word gospel is used, and that is the gospel of grace. And another synonym for the, the grace of God is the kindness of God, and so we'll talk about that. So those are the three ways, and then there's an outcome of that gospel that we'll share in this fourth window. So the first use of the term gospel is in relation to this word kingdom. And Jesus comes on the scene. We hear about it in Matthew 4, 23. He's teaching people about the gospel of the kingdom, and he's healing people. Um, he is, is with the people. And basically, he enters into a world that is hurting and broken and filled with pain, a lot like our world. Um, many of the things that have happened in our world in the last week would be similar to the kinds of things that Jesus, the people would have known in Jesus' day, um, different in, in maybe the, the way that it happens, but the, but the heart of it would be the same. There was all kinds of suffering and disease. And Jesus comes preaching the gospel of the kingdom, which is really a hopeful vision for this broken world. It's a hopeful vision for this broken world. And it's a beautiful vision. And, and when Jesus teaches us to pray, he says... Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And that's really the essence of his vision, is that when, when we as human beings begin to carry out the will of God in the world, we will reverse all of the problems and the suffering in this world when we live in the way that God intended us to live. It's a beautiful vision. But the, 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 the shortcoming of it is that, try as we might, we can't seem to realize this vision that Jesus has for us. We've been trying and, and trying we can. And, and so... Turns out, though, that the good news is not only is Jesus the proclaimer of the kingdom, but he is the king of that kingdom. 2 Peter 1.11 says that a, an entrance is richly provided into this kingdom through the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, as it says in that verse. But we're going to use the idea of king, and so uh, we'll symbolize that with a crown. Now, the problem with realizing the vision that Jesus proclaims is twofold. The first part is that we worship the wrong things. When we worship the wrong things, we end up doing the wrong things and living in the wrong way, the way that God didn't intend us to. And so our lives are filled with idols. You know what an idol is, anything that you put in primary place in your life. And so 
uh, different kinds of idols that we attach ourselves to would be money, for example, or power, or success, or sex, or sometimes a relationship that's unhealthy. We make that the controlling uh, element in our lives, and it becomes an idol for us, and it veers us away from the path of God. But Jesus comes declaiming, proclaiming himself as Lord. And the way I look at it is this. It's as if there's a throne in my heart there somewhere, and I, I, I continually want to put the wrong things on that throne. But when Jesus comes proclaiming himself as Lord, it's as if he, he brushes away all those idols and takes his rightful seat in the center of my heart and becomes the controlling force in my life. And so he, by being our Lord, overcomes the idolatries and the idols in our lives. Now, the second thing that keeps us from realizing that vision is this notion of sin, which some of you may be put off by. It's a word that has been bantered around a lot and maybe not fully understood. But sin is simply anything that we do that veers away from God's plan for us. It's disobedience to God. And it can be directly disobedience to God. It can be harming one another. It can be alienating us from the world around us. We can sometimes be alienated even from ourselves through our own sins. And uh, the, the end result of that is that we're separated from God. God has a picture of the universe that is of perfection. And, and sin is the lack of perfection. And so uh, it alienates us from God. And the beautiful message, the good news of the king, is that Jesus is not only Lord, but it says in 2 Peter 1.11, he is also Savior. Now, we know how uh, the Savior works. He goes to that cross before Easter, and he dies an atoning sacrifice there for sin. So that the punishment of sin, which in order for there to be justice in the world, there must be punishment, there must be justice, but that punishment is taken into the person of Jesus Christ rather than to the people who committed the sins originally. And so by doing that, Jesus cancels out our sin, and I'll make that a cross just so you can see that it's through the cross that Jesus cancels out our sin. And, and then uh, on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead, so the good news goes. And his resurrection is sort of a stamp to say that, in fact, sin had been overcome because the wage of sin was death. And so if Jesus overcame death, then, in fact, he had overcome sin. Now, this is a new relationship that's on offer to us with God through Jesus Christ. And you wonder, well, how do I get the relationship that I would want that, am, that changes who I am so that I can be a part of the kingdom and bringing the kingdom into fruition? And the answer is, the way that we lay hold of this relationship is through the kindness of God. Ephesians 2, 7 through 8, talks about this relationship being ultimately a gift from God. When we think about religion, we often think about what I must do to earn God's favor. Will I do enough good things that he would accept me into heaven? But Jesus turns that on, his head, on its head and says, I'm going to give you this relationship as a free gift, not by your own doing. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. And the way that we lay hold of this gift, you've been given a gift at Christmas time and you don't just let it sit there. Um, you, you tear off the, the wrapping and, and see what's inside. Well, how do you tear off the wrapping of this gift? And the answer is that you open it, as it says in Ephesians 2, 7 and 8, by faith. It's opened by faith. 
So when we come to Jesus Christ the King and we accept the reality in faith that He is Lord and Savior, we in essence are opening the gift of His kindness and the influence that it would have on our lives. Now what's in that gift? When we open up, what do we find? We find a couple of things. We find a new identity and a new purpose in our lives. Ephesians uh, 2.19 talks about our new identity, and 2 Corinthians 5.20 talks about our new purpose. I symbolize this with the signet ring. In the story of the prodigal son, when the son returns home, his father gives him a robe and clothing, and uh, then he puts a ring on his finger, and he probably put the signet ring. And the signet ring didn't have the son's initial on it. It had the father's initial on it. And same way, the signet ring that we're given doesn't have our initial. It has the initial of the king who we have come to. Now, Ephesians 2.19 says that we have citizenship in heaven as a result of opening this gift. We are now citizens in heaven. Um, We are part of a household of God. And this is the identity piece. This is This is the new you. You are no longer a citizen merely of this world, this broken, fallen, hurting world, but you have become a citizen of the heavenly kingdom already in Jesus Christ. And I got to tell you, I'm still wrestling after years and years and years, still wrestling with the implications of that identity. It's a beautiful, rich concept that we continue to to think through. It shapes the way we live and, and how we act in the world and how we see ourselves and how we see others. So the first uh, aspect of the gift that we open is, a, uh, is who we are. Our citizenship is in heaven. And the second one is our purpose in life. Now we become ambassadors for the king. And in the old days when a king would want to send one of his citizens to another land to do his business, he would give them the signet ring and say, take my ring, it's my authority. You go into this foreign land and you do business on my behalf. And so he would send that citizen. And in the same way, as followers of Christ, we are sent as ambassadors. Only this time we're sent back into this fallen, broken world. But now with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, with the instruction of Scripture, and with the support of the community, the church, we get to participate, uh, not in our own strength, but in the strength of God, with His help, in the work of bringing about the kingdom that God, that Jesus initially proclaimed. So we're enlisted into that work and we're equipped and empowered to do it. So he doesn't just save us so that we can, we can be transformed, but it's to send us into a hurting, broken world. And at the ultimate goal of this is the redemption of all things, that God would bring this world back to its intended purposes. And when the king comes back, which is part of our doctrine, part of our faith, that will be brought to fulfillment. But in the meantime, we have the privilege of participating in that work of bringing about the kingdom. And so it's, this is the story of God, and, and the story of God uh, is an invitation for you to bring your story, the story of your life, under the story of God's. And the way that you say yes to that is, again, by faith. By faith, by accepting the reality that Jesus Christ is, in fact, Lord and He is Savior. Now, um, if you are considering these truths, which I've only probably begun to really explore, there's so much richness there, but if you are considering them today, I just remind you that we, 
We worship a God who is living and, and breathing and moving and listening. And he has this incredible capacity to, to communicate with you even right now. And, and so as we continue this morning, if you feel yourself leaning by faith into the Lordship of Christ and the salvation of Christ, then, then you just can declare that in your mind and God will hear and we will celebrate that together. But what I wanted to do uh, in the time that we have remaining is to look in particular at the third window here. In the last weeks, we've talked about the first window and then the second window, kingdom, king. Today, we're going to talk about the third window, which is the kindness of God. And so would you open up to Ephesians 2, if you have a Bible, verse 4. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and we will give one to you. Ephesians 2, verse 4. Just raise your hand. Don't be shy. We have this all the time, people raising. And if you need a Bible, take this Bible home with you. We'd love to give it to you. It's page 674, 674 in that particular Bible that we'll be looking at. Now, in the first three verses of chapter 2, it's really been like the second window talking about the, the, the ruined nature of the world and how sin has contributed to the problems that we all encounter and face in the world. Uh, And then uh, it's as if in the midst of painting a picture of the brokenness of the world, uh, Paul says in verse 4, but God, but God. Now, scholars and preachers and teachers have always had a special appreciation for this phrase, but God, because it signifies God on the edge of the universe looking into brokenness and pain and suffering and determining that he wouldn't turn away but instead he would step in to intervene. So, but God is the way that this verse 4 starts. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, which is another word for those sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. So several words that we've been camping on. His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, It is the gift, there's that word, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then, this is sort of getting into window pane number four, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And in this text, I want to call out three words to focus on to celebrate Easter this morning. And the first one is that little word, gift. Gift. When we think about religion, we oftentimes think about what you do, what you have to do in order to earn God's favor and earn the favor of the other people who are also religious, right? Religion is often characterized as a set of do's and don'ts. And it gives the impression that life is this constant effort 
to try and do the right things and we have to, by force of will, avoid the wrong and carry out the good. And so we try and try and we strain and we struggle, but we get tired and we can't keep it up. And then we trip and fall. Uh, My son sent to me uh, some videos of people, they were called treadmill fails recently. Um, Have you seen some of these? And, and, and the, the concept of religion is, is sort of like being on a treadmill where you're trying to do the right things all the time in your own strength. And this wonderful video of treadmill fails was all about people trying to do tricks on treadmills and uh, how, how that turned out for them. And this isn't really part of the sermon, but I just want to leave you with this bit of knowledge that uh, don't try to ride your bike on a treadmill. That would be one that I would encourage you not to do. Uh, also, if you turn the treadmill onto full speed and try to jump on it as quickly as you can, that probably won't work out well with you either. And then this was my favorite one. If you have a series of treadmills and you turn them all on and try to run crossways across them all, that doesn't work so well either. Um, you won't make it. And that's the, that's the thing about religion is we feel sometimes like we'll never make it because we're on the treadmill and we trip and we end up in a heap and there's no way for us to do that. But Jesus comes along and he turns that whole notion on its head. Uh, for Jesus, r- Jesus teaches, you know, that, that, um, it's impo- that, that, that religion is not the essence, but relationship is really the essence of it. Religious teach, religion teaches us that if we fail, we're out of favor. But Jesus turns that on its head. He says, it's not about religion and about doing, it's about relationship. And the best example, one of the best examples I can think of on this was one time when I was watching the World Series several, several years back, and you know they have the pregame show on the World Series, and they had poor, some poor sap they pulled out of the out of the uh, the stands, and they put him on the mound, and there was a there was a a tarp uh, over the home plate, and it had a little tiny hole in it, and they said if you can throw the ball from from the pitcher's mound through that little hole, then you win a million dollars. And you can imagine this young guy standing on the plate, right? He probably hasn't had a chance to warm up or do anything. And he's supposed to throw this baseball through that little hole, not much bigger than the baseball itself. And if he does, he wins and he gets a million dollars. And so uh, all the, the whole stands are filled with people and they're all cheering him on. And, and what would it be like if he misses, right? He's going to drag, droop his head in shame and guilt and walk off the field with thousands of people, you know, oh, depressed for him. Now, I've asked myself as I was watching that, what would Jesus do with the pregame show for the World Series? How would he conduct it? And I think it would be something like this. If I understand the gospel correctly, the good news, if I understand it correctly, it would be something like this. Jesus would come up to that poor young man standing on the mound, and he would say to him, scandalous as this is, he would say, here's a million dollars. Before you throw the ball once, before you do anything, Here's a million dollars. And then he would take it, he'd put his hand around him, and he'd say, now let's go work on your pitching, all right? Because it matters what we do. It matters how we live. But, but Jesus doesn't expect us to get that right before we come into relationship with him. In fact, he turns it on his head. He says, come to me, broken and sinful as you are, and then I will put my arm around you, and we will work on life together. But I will help you. And your relationship with me is not contingent on you throwing that little ball through the hole every time. Because you can't do it. You'll miss. 
So the first word we focus on is gift. And that's the gift of relationship in Jesus Christ. And some of you, even those of you who've been living and doing life with Jesus for a long time, you're, you're still living by law. You're still thinking that I got to do the right things in order to earn God's favor. And, and this, this gospel, the goodness, hasn't really sunk all the way into your soul yet. And I want to give you an experiment for this week. Would you try living on grace this week rather than living on law? Just give it a shot. See how powerful is the motivation to do good things, to love people when it comes from grace rather than law. So the first one is the gift, and that leads us to the next one, which is faith. This gift that is on offer to us is on the table, this gift of relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. How does it happen that we get this gift? Does Does it just happen because it's there? God just gives it to us? Do I have some say in the matter? What's my appropriate response to this offer that is being made to me, this good news, this gospel, what's my appropriate response? And the answer is faith. To to see what God has on offer and to say yes to that. I want that. I, I want to put Jesus in the place of Lord of my life. I am tired of being my own Lord. It hasn't gotten me where I need to be. And I want to see Jesus as my Savior. I'm saying yes to that. That's faith, to say yes to what is on offer in the person of Jesus Christ. And this isn't just sort of like a a, a perfunctory kind of yes that we say. I was talking to my father-in-law recently, and he was telling me when his daughter, who is my wife, uh, was learning to drive, he had always thought that she would someday drive. But it was a whole different story when she actually got her license, and he was to get in the car with her. And drive somewhere, right? No extra steering wheel, no, pl- no pedals. You know, you're in the car and you're entrusting your life to another person, right? That's what it really means to have faith and trust in somebody. Is to entrust yourself. And when we talk about the person of Jesus, we're talking about getting, really, truly getting in the car with this person. Letting him direct and lead and guide your life. That's what it means to come to Christ in faith. Now, this leads us to the third word, which is resurrection. We have gift, faith, and then resurrection. Now, God altered the normal way that the world works to bring Jesus back to life, and and you probably wonder about that. Uh, and, and let me continue the illustration of getting in the car with your daughter. Recently, we were on vacation, and I, my daughter, who's 15, um, this is not a parenting sermon, so don't do this, um, and doesn't have her license, obviously, uh, prevailed upon me to drive the car. And we were out in the middle of nowhere, and we thought, well, maybe uh, it'll be okay, because uh, it's dark out, there's nobody around, and there's nobody that we can hit. And so uh, against uh, good judgment, we thought, well, let's do this. And as soon as I told the rest of the family, every single one of them said, can we come? Which is an incra- a crazy response, right? Uh, to get in the car with uh, this person who hasn't driven before. And so we all piled in the car, the entire family. I have four children. We all piled in the car. And the dog was with us sitting behind, sort of panting and drooling on everybody. And we're all glued to the windshield wondering what's going to happen because we're going to drive with this person who has never, ever driven before. She has watched it happen 
vaguely uh, without paying a lot of attention. Uh, and so there we are. We start off. And as we started to go, and the car started to speed up, speed up and I started to tense up, and everybody started talking at the same time because everybody had uh, ideas of how she should drive. Um, and as I started to tense up, I, I thought to myself, it really is a good thing that we require, we require driver's licenses from people. Um, it really is a good thing because I don't know if this person can drive a car at all. Uh, I, they haven't been through the classes. They haven't shown the ability. They haven't passed the test. And we came to the first corner. And you know how it is, the steering wheel, you have to turn a lot more than you would think if you've never turned it before. And so she started to turn it very gingerly, you know, and, and, and we're not making the turn, and we're careening towards the side. And, of course, everybody's yelling, and the dog's barking. And it was a wonderful time that we all had <laughs> together, an exciting time. But I did say to myself, um, I need some confirmation before I ride with you that you know your stuff. That's a good thing to have comfort. Before I'm going to get in the car with you, it's good for me to know that you have been checked out. That you, in fact, can do what you intend, that you're trustworthy. And I want to tell you this morning that is the key to the resurrection. It's God saying over Jesus Christ that he has, in fact, been checked out. And he is trustworthy. He is trustworthy. You can bring your life to Him. You can entrust your life to Him. You can, you, can, you can trust His judgment in your life. You can let Him be the determiner of your life. You can let Him help you make good decisions because He's been checked out and He is trustworthy. That's what the resurrection says, that He has the power to overcome sin. Because the wages, the consequence of sin, is death. And if Jesus has overcome death, then he must have overcome sin. Therefore, you can trust him. Now, I know that the resurrection is a difficult thing for us to swallow at times. Because it's an unusual way for God to work in the world. But I want to ask you this question. Uh, If you were God and you wanted to make a point, might you suspend the normal way things work in order to underscore a truth that you felt was essential to people knowing? See, that's what's happened in the resurrection is that, that God, yes, worked in a different way, but it's because he had something big to say. And when God wants to make a point, he underscores it with his power. It stands out in the history of the world for a reason. Because it's the key to everything. If we live in a world that has problems, and we do, and people can't fix it, what an elegant solution God has come upon to solve it. He says, you can't fix this broken world I am going to fix it, but I'm going to come into your world, be a part, to be a common person with you. I'm going to, from within that world, teach you what you need to know. And then I am going to solve the dilemma which has kept you separated from God, which is sin. I'm going to solve that 
in myself, but I'm going to do it in such a way that you get to peer in and see. And that's why the father-son piece is so important, because we get to see what it's like for God to solve the dilemma of sin in this world, but not to go off and do it on his own, but to let us see how he's doing it. It's an elegant solution to the problem that we've been facing ever since the fall. God would solve it, but we would solve it. He would solve it in himself. And it's unusual for a reason. The resurrection is unusual for a reason because God is making a point. And that point is being made to you and to me this morning. He's saying, you can trust me because I've been checked out. And your biggest problem, the sin issue, which has wreaked havoc in the world that I made, I have solved. I solved it on the cross. And I demonstrated the solution in the resurrection. You can trust me. That's what God is saying at Easter. And and, and we don't just celebrate the resurrection at Easter. In fact, we celebrate it every Sunday. In fact, we ought to be celebrating the resurrection every single day of our lives, every waking moment of our lives. We celebrate the resurrection because it's the sign that, in fact, God has overcome what has kept us separated from him. 